This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for November 3rd, 2016, the Is It Tuesday Yet edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times. You are down the line somewhere. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. John Dickerson of Face the Nation. You are also down the line somewhere. Hello, John. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Where are you spending election night, John? In New York? In New York City. In the studio, in a CBS studio? In a CBS studio. We'll start at 6.30 uh, in the evening for the evening news, and then we'll be on until, uh, we're scheduled to be on at least until 2 in the morning. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, um, we got a long night ahead of us. Yeah. On this week's GabFest, the election is five days away, and the polls are narrowing. How close is it? Then James Comey's letter to Congress about the Huma Wiener Hillary emails upends the race. Did Comey act appropriately? How much effect will his letter have on the election? Then I'm calling an audible. We were going to talk about Trump and taxes in Russia, but I'm just saying no, we're not, because our new topic is going to be how to deal with pre-election anxiety, because I, David Plotz, need your help. <laughs> Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, and for Slate Plus the acquittal of Eamon Bundy and the other Malher, Malher, how do you pronounce that? I don't even know. Malher, protesters. That I don't know. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, the bad, the bad-er, the bad-er. I know. But I'm just choosing to anglicize one part of it, but not the other. But okay, the bad-hour protesters. It was a long, long, many hours. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Also, a reminder, we have our conundrum show coming up at the end of November. Please send us conundrums you would like us to discuss to GabFest at slate.com or at Slate GabFest by Twitter and hashtag them in either case, conundrum, hashtag conundrum, so that we will see them. We need some good conundrums. Five days out. Uh, I have lost it, honestly. Just a heads up, I have been unable to take in any information about the election anymore. I am too despairing. I'm too sad. I'm too scared. I've run out of words and thoughts. I tried yesterday to read about the election and to read the wonderful preparation document that intern Kevin made for us. I was unable to do it, which is an issue because we have a gab fest to do. But, <laughs> but John it's gonna is going to enlighten us. He is yeah. strong <laughs> enough to tell us everything. It's, it's it's a testament to how good a job I can do without basic preparation. Uh, this show will be a testament to that. I'm going to be trumping it on this show, basically. <laughs> so, John, what's going on in the polls? Is this narrowing, the expected narrowing, narrowing, or is there something deeper happening that is giving Trump a, a real advantage? Well, I guess if you want to say expected, it's expected in this sense. If you look at the bouncing of the polls, um, that has taken place pretty consistently since before the conventions. Uh, it is, it is a true thing. Two things are true that whoever the candidate is that's in the center of the news cycle 
is the candidate that's not doing well. Uh, secondly, and sort of corollary to that, is that when Donald Trump is out of the news cycle for getting in fight with Gold Star families, challenging the uh, ruling that could be made by a judge because of its, his parents' uh, country of birth, uh, talking about Muslim, uh, banning all Muslims from coming to the United States, talking about or being heard on a video uh, boasting about sexual assault, when all of that stuff is in the news attacking a former Miss Universe, when he's in the news doing something objectionable, his numbers drop. And who do they drop with? They drop with uh, Republicans and particularly white college educated Republicans. Uh, he has dropped and lost white college women uh, pretty significantly. That seems to be a loss that he's taken. When he is not in the news, when he is, as Republicans, including people in his campaign, referred to as on teleprompter, those Republicans start to come back. The first ones that appear to be coming back are white college-educated men. In the CBS poll on the 19th of October, he was down to 37% among white college-educated men. That was a 10-point drop from the previous poll, which I think was taken on the 4th of October. So that was a huge drop. Um, a bunch of other polls showed the same decline among among white men and particularly white college-educated men. This was both a result of the things he'd said about women, uh, the Billy Bush tape, his performance in the debates, but it was also as a result of a specific effort by the Clinton campaign and their allies to appeal to white college-educated men and to essentially say, you have daughters, you have wives. How are you going to explain to them your vote for Donald Trump, given what he said about women? Those men are now back in the, in the CBS News poll that was released on the 3rd of, of November. Trump's number among white college-educated men is at 45. So whatever qualms they may have had, they have gotten rid of them. Or they just have, you know, they're, they're resetting their opinions when, when he's not in the news. So what's happening, this is a large way of saying what's happening is the tightening in the polls you're seeing is Republicans coming home. And then the other problem is Hillary Clinton has issues with some of her base, this is maybe less of a poll thing and more of a just what to watch for on Tuesday thing, which is she has got weakness in the African-American community, which is why you see this real push on the part of the president. And, you know, they're they're having a Jay-Z concert and Stevie Wonder is going to do a concert. Um, there's a, a real concern that they're just not turning out their African-American base as much as they would like. Emily, what's the evidence about that question around African-Americans? In North Carolina, I know there's an enormous concern that in early voting, African-Americans are not voting in the numbers that the Clinton campaign would like or expected, and certainly not at the numbers that they voted. Right. It's also true in Florida that the numbers are down. In North Carolina, one thing to point out is there are parts of the state where a significant number of polling places in heavily black areas has dropped significantly. So there's one part of the state where there were 30 polling places. Now there's one. So it may not simply be that these black voters are less excited about Hillary Clinton. It may also be that it has just been made harder for them to vote. Right, right. The, and there's their litigation and, and ju- judges intervening or talking about the what's going on in North Carolina as being something out of Jim Crow. Uh, yes, that's you- true. One thing to note is that the Hispanic turnout on, in the early voting in Florida and I think North Carolina is up. So that's significant. Um, It's up in particular with people who don't vote very often or haven't voted before. And there I've been reporting this week on um, 
efforts to really turn out that vote. And it's been really interesting to learn about. And um, so that's a kind of Clinton bright spot, presumably, although, of course, African-Americans break for Democrats, you know, like nine to one. And um, for Hispanics, it's more like two thirds to one third. If I could just interject very briefly on the on what they call jargon watch, uh, the low propensity voter, the reason you want your low propensity voters voting early is that you then they obviously take a lot more of your effort. So if you can get them yes. to vote early, you're, if you rank voters on their intent to vote from one to 10, if your twos and threes and fours are voting early, you know your tens are going to vote. What's the evidence we have so far, John, about the relative strength of the ground games? Uh, the Clinton campaign has banked a lot of hope on the idea that they've, they're prepared all over the country. They're prepared. They've done a ton of work. They have field offices. They have canvassers. They're just out and about. And the Trump folks are more like, hey, we just have a we have a media campaign and that's going to excite people as we get near Election Day. How how do those two arguments hold up? I think they pretty much hold up what you there are two different designs here as well. So the Clinton campaign did the Obama model, which is they built their own ground game, essentially separate and apart from the Democratic National Committee. It is a lot of Obama veterans and it is as state of the art as as it can be. So there's all of the science and all of the testing of messages and mobilization and persuasion that Sasha Eisenberg and, and others have been writing about for the last several years. So that means that they say in the cliche when you talk about the ground game is that a good ground game is like a field goal. You have to get really close, but then if you have a good ground game, it can give you those last few points. And so if you are a, a despairing Democrat, uh, and that might be a, and uh, I am a redundancy, then you've got to look at the integration between the Clinton ground game and data and analytics operations and think that's going to be helpful to her. The Republicans took a different approach, which is that Reince Priebus, when he did the autopsy or, or commissioned the autopsy in 2012, it was an effort to both say the direction the party should go in, but also to build essentially a freestanding data analytics and turnout operate field operation for the party. And the hope was we will build it. And then whoever the nominee is, we'll just hand it over to them. We'll know where all the Republicans live. We'll look at all of this consumer data and know what they want, do all the stuff that the Clinton people are doing, but we'll do it in the party and then we'll just hand it over. So that's where we are now. And the question of this campaign will be, did the Republican party do all of its work and they appear to be doing it a better than in the past and b pretty well in terms of targeting voters, knowing how to get them out, knowing the messages that will move them. But then what happened in the handoff between the RNC and Trump? Did the Trump folks listen? Did the candidate listen? Did they go the places where they should because their vote you know, would have benefited from a visit from the candidate? Did he talk and stay on message about certain things because they knew they could move uh, you know, their reluctant Republican voters? And, and there will be a, a series of tests the biggest one or the bluntest one is just to look at the traditional Republican areas is turnout where you would expect it to be for a generic Republican. Uh, and you could just kind of look at Romney and, and McCain from last time and see how how he's doing in the Republican areas based on those two previous performances. Then you want to look at the swing areas. And then the the upside for Trump, but this is a problem or a challenge, is obviously those those new Trump voters, whether they're on the eastern side of Ohio in Mahoning County and around Youngstown, the kind of what would have been considered blue collar Democrats. Are there enough of them coming from Trump? Those are people uh, that he may be attracting, but they may also be low propensity voters, which would benefit from a ground game. 
And that's a huge question. Is there an operation to turn out the new kinds of voters that he might be appealing to? There's evidence they may be out there, but not that they are so numerous and that there's a system for getting to the polls that it's going to be the big, big factor. But we really, we won't, won't know till Tuesday. Why do you think, Emily, that despite the fact that 300 newspapers have endorsed Hillary Clinton, the only newspapers that have endorsed Donald Trump are the KKK newspaper, the National Enquirer, and one Las Vegas newspaper owned by a conservative billionaire. Uh, why do you think it is that the general media, the, the, the mainstream media condemnation of Trump has had as little impact as it has had? Well, he's an anti-establishment candidate and editorial page judgments are kind of a classic expression of the establishment. And also, when you look at the media coverage, some of it has been really helpful to Trump, especially in the last week and a half. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about the FBI and Jim Comey in a little bit. But when you think about the headlines that are blaring, what people are talking about on television, it is as much about these questions about Hillary Clinton and whether she can be trusted as it is about, you know, Donald Trump's continuing missing tax returns and shenanigans. You know, one thing that really struck me this week was, I think, a Washington Post poll showing that Trump had a significant advantage among voters asked who do you think is more trustworthy? Oh, my I mean, fucking God, you're kidding. Yes. He has only, no, I'm he not has kidding. And that's a reflection of the success that Trump has had in painting Clinton as, you know, as crooked. Like this idea of crooked Hillary, I think, has caught in people's minds. And um, yeah, I think I would. Uh, I, I, I don't know if it's caught there. Um I mean, he's been, they've been kind of, for a long time, they were sort of neck and neck on trust. And then he has been ahead of her for a little while. I'm not sure it's because Donald Trump is using the word crooked or talking about her. Um, I think that she's had, obviously, uh, a lot of challenges this election that go to that problem. There you are, know, John, I just dispute that as a premise. They, 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 she has had a normal number of challenges. She's somebody who is who has, you know, certainly made mistakes, and it, she's had a, a normal number of challenges. She's had a political life where she has made errors. But if you compare it, like by any reasonable calculus, his trust should be one fiftieth of what hers is. Right. The, you when you consider the. the so, if you've got an existing problem, each new incremental story about that problem causes an issue. So for him, when he had, when his problem comes into the news cycle, he tanks. So the point is not that you measure the one-to-one. It's that on this question, and by the way, there are more voters voting for her who never, who think she's not trustworthy, but are going to vote for her anyway. So the, the question of trust as a determinant of your ultimate vote is not that clear. Um, but on the question of trust, each new article that comes out that says, you know, she had this private email server or she uh, turns out she deleted all these emails. Each one of those hits this specific question. When Donald Trump has problems on, you know, tells another whopper, it doesn't land in the, in the same way. That's just the way voters process it. I mean, there have been more stories about how Donald Trump hasn't, like in aggregate, hundreds more stories about how he's not telling the truth on everything from his position on the Iraq war to his tax returns to almost everything. I mean, there have been hundreds and hundreds of more stories, more fact checks, all of that. And yet the polls 
have not reflected that in terms of people's right. trustworthiness. Well, so so, but my my conclusion is simply that that we've become a country where partisanship and partisan identification has now overwhelmed other forms of thinking, and that's. But well, it's not de- just that, de- right? I mean, that could be part of the. That is certainly a really important thread. Well, but p- there's there's also sexism, which is you know depressing her numbers in some way, slightly or significantly. We don't really know, but there's that. And then there's the way in which this news dribbles out every day. Practically, there's some new WikiLeaks email to kind of pick through and. I find it hard to follow. So I'm sure that lots of other people are not that interested. And yet you're sort of left with this like kind of creeping cloudy question mark feeling about her. Whereas when Trump lies or makes a really obvious false statement, it's like a big thing and then it goes away. And then as John said, well, it goes a few away because ago, he Trump makes another big control lie. This well, by but- staying on teleprompter, whereas Clinton doesn't have control over what WikiLeaks or the FBI releases about her. So but I think we really need to separate the question of trust from the overall state of the race. So because trust doesn't mean I mean, it's it's clear that people are voting for both of them, even though they don't find them trustworthy. We're pretending there are these kind of voters in the middle. I think, David, you're right. They're, it's essentially partisanship. And a, a lot, a lot of, I mean, Donald Trump has, you know, some number, we don't know what that number is, but um, 30, high 30s, low 40s of people for whom new information about him, no matter what the kind, does not change their opinion about how they're going to vote. People are not uninformed. They're just choosing to give him a pass on all of that. Right. They're just, they're just being unbelievably I mean, the other irresponsible. Thing I think we have to go back to a little bit is the gender and race divide that we touched on earlier. I and mean, that is really striking. If Donald Trump wins this election, he is going to win with white people, in particular white men, and with low to zero support from certain other groups. I mean, essentially, he's going to win without black people. And that is like, I can't quite get my mind around what that is actually going to look like and what that means for the country. I'm ashamed of my my fellow white men. I'm ashamed of us white men. Uh, I think you're right. He's, But Emily, that's a worth just highlighting a little more is that the demographic changes in the country that we've been tracking for the last several elections are not going to abate. Uh, They're not suddenly going to be more white men in America. In the next presidential election, they will be a smaller share of the election as they have been a smaller share um, for the last several. Um, So America is changing. And yet the election, this, you know, if Donald Trump is elected, he will be a, a president from a previous electorate, essentially going into a future. Right. Will he will be a last more. gasp president. And yet, you know, we don't know what the impact of that will be going forward, obviously, because it is such an enormous question mark. I mean, I really feel like I have no idea what that will actually consist of that presidency. I have two white male sons. So I've gone from one to two. So the number of white men increasing. Um, <laughs> it's all on you. <laughs> one, one, one last question. Uh, I guess for you, John, is there any fundamental shift in race dynamics still possible? We have just, you know, just the weekend, essentially. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, um, and yet last week we taped on a Thursday and then on Friday, Jim Comey made his announcement. So maybe we shouldn't say that it's impossible. Well, but there's not that there's, there may not be that much evidence that the Comey announcement 
did much. Really which, mattered. Well, yeah. I mean, Which would the, be very rational of the electorate since it really shouldn't matter since it was about so much uncertainty. But we can talk about that more in a moment. The real question is just um, the one you raised at the beginning, which is about ground game. I mean, this is a um, this is a question of who can turn out their voters and who has the model in place for working those voters and turning them out here. Can I raise one more question about Election Day itself? You know, there have been reports that um, Trump advisor Roger Stone and other people are preparing, you know, really striking voter intimidation tactics, like planning to show up in black neighborhoods in cities like Philadelphia and Detroit and do everything they can to stop people from voting. I can't tell whether this is actually going to materialize or not. It's a problem for the RNC because they are under a consent decree not to do all of this. And and so they're trying to distance themselves as much as possible from these elements of the Trump campaign. Do you guys have a sense of, you know, how big a factor this is? Or is it just like impossible to know in advance how that's actually going to play out? Like part of me thinks it's just a... You just threaten all of these things and then you don't actually do them because that would be breaking the law. I can't imagine this is going to be a big thing. Number one, there's not people actually don't want to go do this. There are not huge numbers of people who actually want to go into an unfamiliar neighborhood. Stand there with a stand gun. There with a gun. Polling place. Yeah. And it's it, 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 I, I you know, there might be an episode, an incident or two. I just think it is very unlikely that there's going to be this on a, any kind of wide scale. Two, it's likely to backfire. Yes. Because you you will just make people want to vote even more. So it seems it seems like j- just usual Roger Stone uh political dirty tricks theatrics that will I doubt will turn into anything. But John? Yeah, no, I think you're right. The 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 I think it is all you know, just he's messing uh, with people so just to, to close the segment i would just say you so the race dynamics can't shift but the one thing that can shift is that people can vote so if you are in a swing state get out and vote drive someone to the polls make your friends go vote be relentless about it if you have a friend who's not planning on voting make them show up and vote this is an election where it actually matters it's a difference between the survival of american democracy and its destruction you have to get out and vote so if you're listening to the show and you live in any state where the outcome is possibly up for grabs get out and vote i'm not telling you who to vote for just get out and vote <laughs> although implicit <laughs> yeah i am telling you who to vote for i'm just i'm just trying to play defense for you john <laughs> I'm trying to protect you. Me too. I mean, I'm defense. trying to protect you guys. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better. With unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. 
and they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. FBI Director James Comey sent an extraordinary letter to Congress last week saying that Hillary Clinton was going to prison, right, Emily? <laughs> no, he, he sent a letter that said almost nothing, but in its almost nothingness left that possibility seemingly like dangling out there. <laughs> what What is the best case to make for what Comey did, Emily? Well, so last summer when, you know, the FBI was um, in the midst of looking through all of Clinton's emails from a private server, um, Comey decided that he needed to give a public explanation about um, why the FBI had concluded that she should not be indicted. And this was highly unusual. Usually when law enforcement decides not to indict someone, they don't then spill that person's business all over the news and they don't comment on it and give a kind of editorial judgment, as Comey did by calling her use of her server extremely careless. But Comey wrote a letter, issued a statement doing that, and then he gave a press conference. And as often happen at press conferences, kind of more information came out. His justification for this is that it was an extremely political and um, high-profile case that the American people deserved an explanation. And I think also implicit in this is this idea that Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, had compromised herself by letting Bill Clinton talk to her on her airplane on her way to Aspen, Colorado, and that President Obama, in saying that he didn't think that Clinton had intentionally done anything you know, terrible, had also kind of prejudged the investigation. And I so I think Comey kind of set himself up as the neutral law enforcement arbiter who was going to explain these conclusions. But in giving that explanation, Comey also promised to update Congress if anything changed. And then it seems, I think we've learned from the, like, enormous number of leaks from the FBI since Comey's letter last week that there has been internal dissent in the FBI about what to do with this new cache of emails from Anthony Weiner's laptop, which are from Huma Abedin, and then also probably a fight going on about how much to investigate the Clinton Foundation and this whole question of whether there was improper influence when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. So the FBI is having like this internal fight. And it seems to me like the best explanation is that Comey felt like he had to answer to his FBI agents who've been criticizing the decision not to continue investigating and not to indict. And so it was a kind of defensive action that he took as the head of the FBI to issue this letter. And also there's his fear that the discovery of the Huma emails on Wiener's computer was going to leak anyway. So that's the justification that he felt like he had to go public. I think you can get yourself to some kind of announcement. I think it's a mistake. Like, I think last July was a mistake and is a misuse of the FBI's power and role. But what I find really inexcusable, as many other people have said at this point, is 
the totally vague, obfuscating, question mark nature of that letter, which literally read as if, like, nobody had looked at it before Comey issued it. It just wasn't written for clarity or for reassuring people or giving the public a kind of fair sense of what was really still at play with these new Huma emails. And that I just find to be deeply disturbing. John, what's the evidence so far about whether this has made a difference among voters? Well, <clears throat> again, the, the if you already had the Republicans coming home to Donald Trump uh, when he stayed out of the news, this kept a couple of more. God, cycle. Can you imagine if you actually had to fucking go home to Donald Trump? How terrible that would be! Like, oh, the the you'd go uh, home for Thanksgiving, he'd just talk at you the whole time and <laughs> grope your sister. Ugh. Anyway, go ahead. The, Sorry, you were uh, saying. <laughs> So Republicans who uh, were coming home anyway and, and his staying out of the news cycle, this took put a couple of days of him not being in the news cycle. So it, continued, it allowed that to continue. And he didn't overreach particularly in his response to it. So I think in that way, it was probably helpful. I think the Democrats, of course, they're going to say this. So, you know, uh, beware. But um in a bunch of different ways. And in our polling and in other polling, we haven't seen a big drop off. I mean, people talk about enthusiasm. There is not a lot of enthusiasm to vote for Hillary Clinton, but people are still voting for her in the Democratic camp. This might have hurt enthusiasm, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people didn't go turn out to vote. Everything I think you said is exactly right about the original sin being on the 5th of July. Of course, the original sin is that Hillary Clinton had a server of her own outside of the rules. But um, in his letter, why didn't he say, we don't have a warrant yet and we haven't read the emails? I mean, well, strike that. Maybe he read the emails without a warrant, which (laughs) would be wrong. No, he, he w- didn't, or at least he should. Well, I know. Okay, let's this. let's imagine. Let's imagine that he read that they read the emails, even though they didn't have a warrant, and they couldn't put in down in their letter to Congress that they'd done that. But couldn't they convey somehow the the idea that the the formal investigative look at the emails and the warrant necessary to do that hadn't been issued, so that there wouldn't of be all of this inc- no, in this amazing crazy speculation. That they didn't. I- yeah, I mean, my speculation about this is that so we know that the Department of Justice did not want Comey to make this move and issue this letter. You know, Loretta Lynch didn't forbade didn't forbid him from doing so and didn't fire him. I think if she had, that would have been caused enormous problems in itself um, because it would seem like such a political move. But she didn't do that. So he went ahead. And I just feel like that letter is written in this very lawyerly way as if he's just like talking to like a judge. And it wasn't written like I found I I really feel like nobody sat down with him and just talked about clarity and how to talk to the public in a way that was going to convey where they were and where they were not. And it it's just very obfuscating, that letter. Of course he should have said, we don't have a warrant. For all we know, these could all be duplicates. We're just at the very beginning of figuring out what's here. And he didn't. One one thing this points out is that this investigation is never going to end. And Although once she's president, she can't be the subject of a criminal investigation, I believe. I think since the 70s, DOJ has said that they're, they're not doing that. Oh, I don't mean the FBI investigation is never going to end. You mean this? I mean it, oh, for sure. Congressional hearings. Investigate oh, you're this forever. Right. We are literally yeah. going to be talking about the same 
nonsense not nonsense there's a there this this nonsense alone has an acorn at the at the bottom of it but we're gonna be talking about this in in 2020 it's gonna be shocking i feel like it's important to just mention that the condemnation of comey from former prosecutors has been bipartisan and has been vociferous i mean I think people who do this job have just been outraged at the way in which Comey politicized the FBI. And, you know, whether Clinton still wins the election or not, the idea that this close to actual voting day, you would have the FBI really interfering and kind of polluting the whole atmosphere around the race that should really just be distressing to us, I think. Like, no matter what happens, it would be the same thing if he had made an announcement about, you know, his investigation of Trump advisors over Russia, which, you know, has now entered the conversation and all these leaks from the FBI. This is not what we want the FBI to be doing. And there were these very firm protocols in place at the Department of Justice, which Eric Holder, you know, had written down in a, like, letter that are supposed to prevent this from happening. We should not not be having pre-indictment messages and shadow casting from the FBI affecting people's judgment of a candidate on the eve of an election. We that last point about the the restrictions is really important because Comey said, well, he told Congress that he would identify, he would let them know if the investigation picked back up again. And he was saying he was, you know, staying true to that promise. But that promise is just a verbal promise he made, which is not stronger than the prohibitions against meddling in elections 60 days before the election, which are all which are I guess I'm, I guess my point is that what, the, what you were talking about, Emily, is a is a formal rule as opposed to the informal promise that Comey made in his testimony when he was trying to clean up for the July 5th press conference. Right. And he just doesn't yes. want it. He just doesn't want after the election for Republicans to know that he had this data and or had had inklings of it. And for them to to accuse him of having having covered something up before the election, he's he cares much more about protecting his own reputation and the bureau's reputation than he does about the 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 impact on the election, which is uh, not surprising, but but depressing. And yet also the, the Bureau's reputation and his reputation have ended up taking a huge hit. I mean, he is being pilloried all over Washington and the country by political allies. Not by um, a Republican, not by the Republican, not by the Republicans in the House who will true be will ecstatic. Not, they're ecstatic and they just will. It, it, he, he'll be in better shape after the election with them than he would be. Had, were this to come out after the election. That's but, true. I'm just surprised. I th think of Jim Comey as a fairly upright person, and I'm surprised that's the audience that it loomed so large in his mind as opposed to well, his peers and law enforcement, and I, we, maybe that was naive of me. Well, we don't. I mean, that's that's all speculation. But but what, what yeah. does seem to be true is that if you were trying to protect the FBI reputation, not working for either side, but just trying to protect the FBI reputation, and you knew what a damage it would it would take if you did nothing and then it came out after the election that you had this that this investigation was or that you had this other cache of things you should have been or were investigating i can understand that but the, the, but i still come back to the if you were trying to protect the reputation of the fbi you would have written a more clear statement that said yes. this is what we have i feel obligated because i told you that i would tell you to tell you but we don't know what we have 
And then that, I just, that's the thing that just keeps befuddling me because by not doing that, he's heaped all this more calumny on himself. Well, and in, in fact, he wrote a letter like that to the FBI employees, which promptly leaked. I mean, even that letter, it wasn't perfect, but it was better than his public statement. Except that that letter said, you know, because I'm worried about misinterpretation. And then in the public letter, or in the, not the public letter, but the letter he sent to Congress, he, it was as if it was written to, to conjure yes. <laughs> mi- um, misinterpretation and not necessarily for the benefit of, of one side or the other, but, but, definitely to the detriment of the FBI uh, and himself. So that's the thing. You would think simple self-interest would have caused him to write a more clear letter. Anyway. Right. I mean, remember, he's a lawyer, an FBI official. He's not a communicator to the public. And I think that we – and he must have really been doing this basically not on his – I don't know, entirely on his own, but without the kind of, you know – public relations uh, help from the Department of Justice that maybe could have fended this off. The last thing about this that I find really distressing is the leaks. I mean, the idea that every detail we're finding out, whether it's about, you know, the Huma emails, the Clinton Foundation, the Russia-Trump connection, it's all just leaking from unidentified people who seem to have their own access to grind within the FBI or within DOJ. And that is just not the right way for us to be getting this information. It's really, it's crazy. Yeah, you know, it is crazy, Emily. On the other hand, as a journalist, if this were different circumstances, a different, less heated environment, you would be applauding the noble public servants who are speaking out uh, against the organizational dysfunction of the FBI. So I don't know so be careful, true, be careful, I mean, be careful about wishing away leaks. I don't but I'm not talking about look, there I think it's important to distinguish among different kind of leaks and what the most how you can trust the information that gets leaked. I mean, when you have anonymous people calling up reporters from inside the FBI and different sides of this fight seem to have different reporters they prefer to talk to, how the hell do you know whether it's true or not? And there's a difference between a leak of a document that tells you some fact and what, Emily, you're you're talking about, which is you get – I mean, the day after Comey's announcement, there were three different stories about where the emails – where they were and whose laptop. And, I mean, it was just it, – it contributed to the confusion. It did not add what a, what a leak of official documents would do, which is, you know, attempts to add clarity. Right. It doesn't, it feels like we should be getting the actual true details that are relevant to explaining Comey's letter, not like a total mishmash of different versions so that, you know, depending on which publication you read, you hear that these absolutely are emails to and from Hillary Clinton. No, they're not. Well, actually, we don't know yet. I mean, that's just like, that's not a good way to talk to the public. Let's uh, let's end there. Although I will say the funniest thing I saw was a Dave Weigel tweet. I don't think it was his point which is that the the fact that Anthony Weiner is still alive disproves the theory that the Clintons have their enemies killed. <laughs> That's macabre and yet funny. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right. We were going to have a segment about Trump and taxes and Russia. And for all I know, John and Emily are still going to insist that we do it because, of course, there was yet more information, yet more shocking information about Trump and his taxes this week. Uh, and it would be no doubt uh, public minded and and useful and would advance the interests of the country if we had a reasoned and deep discussion of those issues. I, however, am incapable of having a discussion of those issues. I don't want to have a discussion of those issues because I am not in a state to engage rationally on these issues anymore. I'm in a panic. In fact, Atlas Obscura wisely is calling this week panic week. All our stories are about panic. Uh, Oh, good. You're just adding fuel to the fire. Adding fuel to the fire. Exactly. (laughs) Well, it was when when we decided to be where we go for like delightful relief. Well, truly, truly, it's it is it is a fine reprieve for me. That's for sure. I cannot read any more about this. My, I'm not sleeping. I'm waking up uh, in horror dreams. I had a dream last night. I'm engaged in deep conversation with Ariana Huffington. My God, <laughs> Jesus! Was the conversation <laughs> itself about sleep? Was That's really, a, what was her. What was her take? Was her take was we weren't we weren't actually talking about the election. Oh. You were she talking about. Sleep, which is her big, uh, her big, her right. big project, is getting people to sleep. She was so helping you. That would have been great. A, a conversation with Ariana Huffington about sleep that was itself a dream. Yet it was not restful, so it, it <laughs> didn't serve the purpose. But the the all of which is to say is that I'm in a state of high anxiety. I know that other people are in a state of high anxiety, existential dread. Uh, how can we get through these last few days in a sane way? I want to. I want your advice. I have a few thoughts myself. Um, I personally, I don't want to listen to any podcast. I don't want to listen to this podcast. I don't know why anyone is listening to this podcast. I don't want to watch John on TV. I, I don't want to read the newspaper. I don't for fear mm-hmm. of what's in there. Uh, I'm hoping for some good sports to be on this this weekend. I'm not even sure yet. But what here's a question. I don't know what the answer to that is. But here's a question. Does one type of supporter or another rush to the Internet to seek confirmation that it's all going to be okay, Or do they both in equal numbers seek diversionary pleasures to keep their mind off the horrible thing? I'm not going to seek solace on the internet this time. I did. I did back in 2008. I think when I was interested in what, how that election would turn out. But you that, mean you like follow? You were like on 5:38 every second, or you were looking yeah, in yeah. other corners? Yeah, yeah, just to, yeah. On 5:38, just looking at the numbers, saying, "Oh, this is going. This is going to turn out well for the candidates I support." I, I think maybe because the campaign has gone on so long that I, I just can't. I can't. It's unendurable. I, my thought is is that I would like to spend the weekend. On some big project, I would like to mm-hmm. to engage distracted, in, distracted, pro- cooking something, you know, roasting a whole pig. I actually ordered. I, there's a there's a there's a, a maker project. There's a I want to make a compressed air rocket with with my kids for a maker fair, and so I've ordered some of the materials for that, and I'm hoping they get here by this weekend so I can spend all of Saturday or Sunday making a compressed air rocket, which will be really fun. But I that I need help, help. I think distraction is a really good idea. And um, my husband's actually going away from Thursday to like Saturday night. And I, my kids and I decided that we needed a news blackout basically while he was away and Sunday too. It's pointless and it's such a waste of time. 
let's just all do something else and like enjoy apple picking or whatever. And will you both return to election day? I mean, Emily, professionally, you have to, but will you, David, uh, approach election day with a sort of let me know when it's over or will you be following sort of county by county? I'll be following because I think I'm actually doing there's a live gist at the Bell House in New York, which I'm somehow part of. So I assume I will be there paying attention. Uh, election day itself and that period of news blackout, unless there's somebody who has amazingly reliable information that they're feeding me about what's going on and from the exit polls, I probably will again try, try to distract myself. I, fortunately, I have an entire job and which has nothing to do with the election, and I will spend a lot of my time thinking about that as I should, and and that that is a relief. I don't, you, John, have no such relief, and I guess you don't even seek it because you're a fish in water for this. I don't. I honestly, John, do not know how you can be pickled in this day after day after day after day without well. Relief. Seems too. But since you're immersed in it, before we go on our news blackout, can you tell us that great rundown of which counties to look for? (laughs) I was just going to suggest. I mean, well, yeah, I was just going to suggest that um, I. So I've done two Face the Nation diaries, which is the little podcast I do. One on Ohio and one on North Carolina, which go county by county. Not county by county, but you know, in North Carolina, it's a state where you sort of separate it in three sections. Democrats do well on in the sort of middle section. Republicans do well out west. And it, it breaks down the state by its big cities and the big areas where Democrats will have to do well and Republicans will have to do well. So if people are not following the path you are, that's where they should go. I can't go through all of the sort of 13 or 11 battleground states. But I think if you want the fast version of that, I think you have to watch. I mean, remember, if Hillary Clinton wins, basically takes the Democratic states and then wins Florida, it's done. If she wins Pennsylvania and New Hampshire, it's done. If she wins Ohio, it's over. So the first things to watch for also then, in addition to those states, if you're in Pennsylvania, what's the African-American turnout in Philadelphia? And, and then what's the, where are Republicans going in the collar counties around Philadelphia? Are they turning out in, you know, how big a drop in the white college educated women is Trump having in reality? Is it as bad as we've seen it in the polls? And is there some amazing and incredible spike around Youngstown in Ohio? And in Scranton, is that, is there some huge, is, has the, has the silent majority Trump voter shown And that up? would be the Trump supporting silent majority, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's true. If, if it's a, if both sides turn out their base, I think Hillary Clinton wins. I think if neither side, if it's depressed for both sides, I think Hillary Clinton wins. And I think I'm, I'm basically echoing what the good people at 538 are saying, which, seems right to me. But if Hillary's down and Trump is up, if the rallies do more, what we found in our polling is that there was, particularly in like some place like Pennsylvania, that the explanation for why Trump was eight points behind in our poll was basically that he was only getting 78% of Republicans. That his challenge is not, he can get people to a rally, he can get 30,000 people in a stadium and they are so happy for him. And they're so psyched. And there's huge intensity for a portion of his coalition. But the coalition he needs has to be bigger than that. And he has to turn out traditional Republicans. That's the question is, uh, you know, was he was he able to do it in the right number of states? 
you want to pay a lot of attention to. Say you're, go ahead. Can I just say you're doing absolutely nothing to allay whatever anxieties? Well, I thought we were having a conversation. Because I thought our listeners might want some John Dickerson wisdom as they head into No, Tuesday. they want suggestions about how to spend their weekend. Well, what suggestions are you doing to spend their weekend. weekend don't pay attention. You know, either, either if you don't want to pay attention to the race, go do whatever the thing you love and gives you the most joy is. And if you care about the race... Go find out what the five things are you should be paying attention to so that when you have the race, that will give you a sense of volunteer to try to knock on doors in a swing state either side. But that's another way to manage anxiety to like walk into the heart of the beast and try to do something about it. Anyway, just to finish what I was saying is if you if you look at for what are the like five things you should be paying attention to, it means when Election Day comes, it's not going to be just a blizzard of information. You'll say okay, have African-Americans, which are 22% of the population of North Carolina, turned out. And if they turned out, then if I'm a Hillary Clinton supporter, then I'm psyched about that. If they haven't turned out and I'm a Donald Trump supporter, then North Carolina might go to Trump and that'll be good the for The other them. thing I've been trying to hold in mind is that when we know the outcome of, elec- of the election, that will be plenty of time to think about what comes next, whatever it is. There's sort of no point in trying to game it out now. And pre-worrying is useless like it just makes this moment feel worse and it, it doesn't accomplish anything absolute, I, I know that's that's it, more rational than i usually actually manage to follow through on but i think it's true no it's absolutely useless it's absolutely pointless what i'm doing it's super frustrating to me personally because i'm somebody who's pretty good about not worrying about things i can't control and so i'm mad at myself I, on top layered on top of my anxiety is is self self-flagellation because you're that's exactly right but be that as may, I'm still anxious. John, what's this, the earliest key state that reports? Um, North Carolina closes at 7.30, the polls. So polls close at 7 in Virginia. So now the, here's the, here's the so super important thing. When the polls close and when the votes come in, are very, you know, there's huge gaps between that. And particularly like in a state like Virginia, okay, it closes at seven. And the way the votes come in, Fairfax County, which if you're a Clinton supporter is an area she has to do well in, comes in late. It is possible that the Western, you know, Trump will do well in the West. And then there might, remember in 14, when uh, the Senate race in, in Virginia was, um, kind of a surprise that night. It was closer than people thought. In part, that was because of the way the reporting comes in, that it was, I mean, it was still closer than people thought, but in the end, it wasn't as close as some of the coverage on election night because of the the late arrival of, of votes. Um, I think it's also true that absentees are voted, are counted like they're their own counties. So those come in later. Um, anyway, so I guess the point is just, um, this is obviously Cuyahoga County and Ohio is notorious for coming in late. Um, anyway, so Virginia will come in at seven. North Carolina, as Emily said, is seven thirty. Uh, eight o'clock is the you know big closures in in Florida and Pennsylvania. But Pennsylvania doesn't have the kind of early vote that they do in Florida, so it's going to take. There's going to be a lot of you know counting takes a while. So I think the earliest you're going to know, I mean, unless it's like a total total blowout, um, probably not till. You know, eleven, twelve. All right, oif, oif, kafoif. We all need to come up with fun outings over the weekend, except for John, who has to do a television show, and uh, and then put our seatbelts on on Tuesday. 
What outing are you doing, Emily? Are you apple picking? I haven't. I think, yeah, I'm not sure. It's the one weekend that my kids don't have a soccer game. I actually wish that they did have a soccer game because I find that really relaxing. So, yeah, maybe we'll go for a hike or go apple picking. Good idea. I like your maker project because that's like really, that will occupy your mind distraction. Right, right. I also think I need to cook something big. I'll probably That's a really good idea. I think I'll cook something big on Saturday too. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you're cooking that huge thing on a Saturday night or a Sunday night, attempting to distract yourself from the race, or in John's case, to gird yourself for for 48-hour sprint. What are you going to be chattering about with your loved ones, Emily? The Supreme Court took, so far, the most interesting case of the term last week, this week. I'm, I'm a little lost time-wise. When it decided to hear the case of Gavin Grimm, he is a high school student, I believe, who sued his school board for not letting him use the bathroom for the boys. He's a transgender boy. This is in Gloucester County, Virginia, and he wanted to go to the bathroom with the boys. He is um, taking hormones you know, has male features and is a 17-year-old. So he's on the cutting edge of this national fight over transgender use of bathrooms, especially in school locker rooms and um, restrooms. And the Supreme Court is going to hear this case, I guess, probably sometime this spring, uh, which will be really interesting. And there's sort of, there's a tricky administrative law kind of question in this case about the type of regulation the Department of Justice issued to give transgender kids access to the bathroom of their choice. DOJ did not go through what's called the notice and comment rule um, process in issuing this guidance to schools. And so that's the sort of boring but important issue. And then there are, you know, these sort of basic equal rights questions at, at stake in this case. Cool. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? Um, my chatter is um, that after the election, I'm um, one of the ways I'm going to reorient my life is by participating in one of the Slate Great Books conversations, which I'm really looking forward to with Laura Miller. And so we have announced the four books from which we will choose one to read. They are War and Peace, Madame Bovary, Brothers Karamazov, or Dickens's Our Mutual Friend. Um, and so people can vote mm. and see which of those ones they want to read. Uh, and so they can read it along with us, and we'll... Um, I've never even heard of that Dickens title. Our Mutual I'm, Friend? Mutual... You it's haven't his, read that? What is that? It's his last oh, one. It's a great book. Really? Great book. Really good book. Um, oh, I have to go read it. Really good. Have you read Bleak House, Emily? Yeah, I love Bleak House. Bleak okay. House is awesome. I've never read The Brothers Karamazov, or oh any Dostoevsky. That's crazy. Really? You? Yeah. You're like the best read person I... That's... You should go read that. You would love I, it. Well, anyway, whatever we read, it'll be a joy for everyone. Um, Have so you I'm, read all uh, of them, John? Um, no, no. In fact, uh, I'm three of the. I've only read Madame Bovary. Oh, huh. that just wasn't those. I mean, I definitely was assigned. I'm trying to think which of those <laughs> I've. I've read lots of other Dickens, but I haven't read Our Mutual Friend. I'm sure. I mean, I've had War and Peace and, and Brothers Karamazov on my shelves for years, and I don't know whether it's because I was assigned them and didn't read them. Or they're the kinds of books, of course, I am embarrassed have, for having not read them. So I don't know which it is. But um, I have the Norton edition of Brothers Karamazov, and I can't remember on War and Peace. But um, anyway, you know, either whatever the outcome of the people's vote, I will be uh, delighted. 
Unlike David's, unlike David's posture towards the election. The Maybe that's a good distraction technique for this weekend. Like, get involved, binge watch a great TV show, or read an amazingly absorbing book. I'm too restless for that. I need to, yeah. I need physical action. I don't think I could manage that. I need, I need to yaya myself. I may need to take like a hundred mile bike ride. That might be better. Uh, yeah, my, that's actually a really good idea. Extreme exercise. Or just exercise. My chatter. <laughs> do you think our presidential campaign is screwed up? Fortunately, we are not South Korea. The presidential scandal in South Korea is so fantastically bizarre that uh, it makes what's going on here seem tame by comparison. I am going to not go into all the details because I don't know them. I would strongly recommend that everyone look at the blog post. Uh, Ask a Korean has a great rundown of the scandal, which is consuming Korea around President Park, who is is apparently in the thrall of a Rasputin-like woman named uh, Choi Soon Seal, who is herself, Choi Soon Seal is herself the daughter of a cult leader who had uh, president Park's father, who was also the president of South Korea, in his thrall, and Choi Soon Seal is is sort of involved in this cult, but is also just a corrupt figure who has been pulling the strings around President Park for years and and been incredibly corrupt and bribing it. Um, but it is all exploded because there was a college admissions process. Choi Soon Seal rigged college admissions to help her daughter and that outraged Koreans. But the details about the the stuff that were going on between President Park and Choi Soon Seal are just incredible. There's this thing where Park gave her a budget to purchase the presidential wardrobe and Choi embezzled most of it and bought really cheap clothes made of subpar material. And there's an incredible video of Choi's staff smoking and drinking while eating fried chicken right next to President Park's suit. And at one point, one of the staff members like has chicken grease all over his clothes and is handling President Park's suit. And (laughs) it's just it's the whole thing is is so baroque. It's it's not to be believed. So I would I would look recommend that you look at this ask a Korean blog post and just read about this fantastically weird scandal. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate GabFest. Email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Remember, email us or tweet at us using hashtag conundrum with your conundrum. Subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Uh, Subscribing, commenting, and rating really help us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll see you after the election. 